Hi, my name is Rosalyn O, oh, and you are listening to True Heroes, the podcast that celebrates the ordinary people with extraordinary missions to make the world a better place one day at a time. This week, I sit down with Vincent Chu, a junior project manager at World Wallace, where he shares the knowledge of the most sustainable practices to build and develop our cities. And his mission is to increase the capacity of urban developers and to champion the role of cities as the solution to climate change, not the cause of it. Our conversation covers everything from the secret behind confusing information or misinformation about how to really be a sustainable consumer, the subtle but deliberate ways that urban design can change the way people behave, and we go all the way to talking about his journey of running for Canadian Parliament at age 19. This one is a doozy, and so you might just want to grab a ride. There's so much information packed into this interview, and it's going to be one hell of a ride. All right, Vincent, thank you so much for uh, being on my podcast. Uh, and it's really good to catch up with you because we haven't spoken in a few months. Yeah, it's great catching up with you, too. I'm, uh, I'm quite excited for this. I am actually quite excited to hear more about you, actually, since you've been uh, on quite the adventure from Canada to Europe. And I can talk Ooh. about my adventure bringing people from Europe to Canada. Oh, that's true. Oh, I love that little uh, reciprocal relationship. Oh, it's all fated. <laughs> Lovely. Um, first of all, uh, before we get into any of our oh, cross-continental journeys, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and yeah, tell us a little bit about what you do and who you are? Sure. My name is Vincent Chu. I uh, live in Bank- well, Richmond, British Columbia, but most people know uh, the region by the big city, which is Vancouver. I'm a junior project manager for World of Wallace, and what World of Wallace does is sustainable urban development, either through practices, through um, developments in Europe, or uh, through innovation centers, um, such as the Wallace Innovation Center in Vancouver, where we bring European expertise and innovations to help Vancouver become one of the greenest cities in the world. And we also present ourselves on the world stage with uh, our with renowned speakers, such as our CEO, Gerben Van Straten. Cool. There are many things to unpack in that. That's really exciting. But we must start with the fact that we first met because we're from Vancouver. We actually went to the same university. Um, And even though I'm right now recording from my kitchen table in Bristol, UK, I am also from that uh, same city, which I love. And it's such a famous and just such a green and sustainable city with lots of issues, but a lot of people like yourselves pushing it forward in the right direction. So really excited to catch back from Vancouver. Um, first of all, I think, what is urban development for a lay person who, you know, might be guessing at what those, that combination of words mean, but what does it mean from a, someone in the sector? You know, how I take it is a combination of all the practices that go around construction, the financing, the insurance, um, the consideration of land use, planning, architecture, is take all these fields that are now specialized and yet uh, becoming increasingly interdisciplinary and using them to build cities that satisfy the needs of people. And so these are communities that people want to live in, people want to grow in, people want to raise families in, people want to grow old in. Um, because in the end, most of us spend our time in these cities and the little details about it make all the differences. For example, 
Um, I live by an, an arterial line and uh, walking down a path, you just have cars zooming by you. Um, but in certain cases, there's uh, sound dampening with, say, for example, trees and some shading. Um, and when you walk down, you feel a lot more comfortable. Your heart rate feels a lot lower. And those were design choices put in the city. And those will be there far, probably far past the day I'm gone and have been there for even before I was born. So the, our choices around cities have a lasting impact. And that's, to me, what urban development is, is uh, bringing the knowledge and expertise together to create a lasting impact for future generations. That's amazing. And, you know, I mean, you and I met because uh, we both have a shared interest in urban development, especially sustainable, inclusive, and more socially just urban development. And in fact, OCO, which is kind of the... Um, Uh, company behind this podcast is all about sustainable, inclusive, and more just cities. And we also met in an urban justice course. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And and that was one of the most fascinating things once I got into this world of realizing that these are really deliberate choices, right? For um, the the citizen that just walks on the sidewalks or just experiences day-to-day life, they don't think about it. But our lifestyles and how we experience the world is really defined and designed by somebody, somebody with a vision. And that somebody with a vision could really distort and make lives really horrible for a big number of people for a very long time, or it could improve it. And actually that legacy continues to go forward into the future. So urban developers and planners actually have an immense amount of responsibility um, because you're right, exactly. You're not planning for just now. You're also planning for potentially tens and hundreds of years into the future. Does that ever scare you? (laughs) You know, I think it's fine to make mistakes here and there. It's a learning process. And um, it's interesting that you mentioned that because Vancouver's legacy is in terms of urban buildings and uh, in terms of urban development and the, the culture we built around planning. Um, Larry Beasley actually recently came out with his book, Vancouverism. Um, oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Because of the choices we made in the False Creek area in downtown Vancouver, uh, where we wanted to be committed to bringing, to creating communities that um, people of all incomes could enjoy. And that's, that's funny because um, that was the plan 20 years ago, but choices... And choices uh, 40 years ago led to sort of uh, the development of Vancouverism. And then 20 years ago, that started to fall apart. Now, it's really hard for anyone to afford to live in Vancouver. Oh, yes. (laughs) For anybody who um, doesn't know about the crazy um, housing prices in Vancouver, not just in terms of um, absolute prices, but also relative to average income, Vancouver has gone through a lot of turmoil around real estate, especially residential real estate in the past five to 10 years. And and of course, uh, dating back earlier as well. But in the last five to 10 years, it's gotten extreme, (laughs) extreme. There's a reason why I've left. (laughs) Do you want me to make any comment or? No, it's fine. Um, All right, cool. Uh, Anything else that you want to talk about um, your mission? Um, maybe I'll add a little story first, actually, uh, as a tangent and then get to the mission. Um, 
It's very interesting because I don't think I've ever done this for any other class I took uh, in university. But I actually sent an email to Jeremy, who was our instructor together in our planning class, every two months, just to try and get feedback from him on my final essay for that class. Because I never got any feedback other than,、uh, and you know, I can I can send you the records of this. I bump into him. <laughs> I went to his house. Was like, hey, Jeremy, you know, let's let's have a day where we can sit down and chat about my final essay. It's good to get your feedback on it.、Um, I'm sort of a leech、uh, on his elbow that you can't get rid of. Just following him everywhere. <laughs>、um, and I followed him from UBC all the way to like SFU, where he now teaches. So I I jumped universities following him,、oh、trying to get his feedback. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, Jeremy is an amazing instructor. Let's also put that out there.、Um, He's an amazing guy with so much vision, and he was such an inspiration, at least for me, to get.、Um, To develop my interest in the sector, and I mean, you were already involved with World of Wallace prior to the course, and you already had interest in urban development. But for me, this is where、um, some of my interests really started to take shape, and I started to have the language and vocabulary to articulate why this was so important and what I was interested in contributing to. So yeah, yeah. Jeremy is amazing.、Um, And okay, another part of this、um, that I really want to unpack is、uh, when you say junior project manager. So you explained a little bit about what your workplace does. What do you do as part of that mission? So I'm not actually working on any、um, construction. I did do some consulting as part of their division called Wallace Concepts, some support works and research. Okay.、Um, because we're working with some、uh, developers. Around making really sustainable buildings and communities,、um, sort of area development, and as you may know, that's something that Europe tends to do quite a lot more than North America, developing massive areas at once.、Um, so actually, we will be one of the first people with,、uh, and I wasn't involved in this project、uh, part per se, but I am part of the bigger project.、Um, we will be. Part of developing one of the first buildings with、um, solar facades, basically solar glass, in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.、Um, and、um, that was part of、uh, a company actually that we brought in February,、uh, which a German Spanish company、um, that does solar glass. And that was part of this big trade mission we did to、uh, an expo called Buildex. Uh, where we brought nearly a dozen different European companies with sustainable building products or innovations,、um, and that's not just、um, like higher insulation or energy, but also thinking about how we use cities.、Um, so we we brought all those different innovations over in February. And when you say、uh, how we how we use cities, what does that mean? Sounds so prophetic. <laughs> hmm. So actually,、um, this sounds an interesting one, but there's actually a company called Blast we work with in the Netherlands. And imagine just walking up to a gas station and having it so that it can detect you walking up, and then give you all the relevant information you need. It can maybe link to cameras that look at your car and determine like what gas you have, what model you have, when you and、um, certain you uh, you. Um, European、uh, cities have it so that you can actually check someone's license plate 
to see when they next need maintenance for their car. So mm-hmm. it can provide you critical information based on your surroundings. And then you can integrate with different things like grocery stores. You can have personal apps. So you can have an app on your phone um, interlink with a monitor in the store that can provide you information. That's so, okay. First of all, two uh, terrible buzzwords have uh, popped into my head, which is uh, smart city. And yeah. there's, I know there's both a lot of excitement and mm. concern about this notion of the smart city. What, what do these buzzwords mean to you? Um, is that part of the um, positioning of this project that you're talking about? When you mentioned the buzzword smart cities, I initially um, thought of two other buzzwords, privacy and data. Mm -hmm. Um, And let me just really quickly, because I can't explain my answer without explaining my stance on privacy and data. I'm actually really supportive of us collecting more data and monetizing it. Um, Like, for example, Google, when you click an ad, they make 500 times more if you click the ad versus you just see it. So if they give me a relevant ad that I click on, I see 500 times less ads because they make fractions of a cent um, if you see the ad, whereas if you click something, you're more likely to buy it. And they can make sense from that um, from that transaction. Mm-hmm. So having better data is actually really efficient. But people have issue with how that data is uh, being sold, not mm-hmm. precisely... Um, well, it gets linked to how it's being used. For example, if Facebook has the data, they sell it to people separately. Whereas if you have it in some like open source database, well, think about if a city had all information that Facebook had about where people travel, where people shop. You can make cities a lot more sustainable, a lot more efficient if you gave it to startups that looked for those solutions and Facebook took a cut for having the data. So open repositories of data but there's a licensing cost where let's say like 20% of the profit you make from using Facebook's data goes to that company. Um, Mm -hmm. And we do something very strange with privacy data law that we don't do with any other law. For example, criminal laws or civic laws, they automatically protect you um, against malicious use of a lot of different a lot of different things like antitrust laws, for example, when it comes to companies, they protect you by making sure that the competition is competitive and fair. Mm-hmm. With data, we have an opt out option rather than automatically protecting people from malicious uses, like uh, using your DNA information to deny you health insurance, which is not great for society because mm-hmm. those who need insurance um, are really those who are at risk of um unexpected large expenses or Mm -hmm. costly things like that Um, rather than protecting people against malicious use of the data we're just protecting people protecting people from having their data collected Mm -hmm. and in order to achieve a more efficient world we really that's what we need is more data Um, really a lot of different fields now are being driven by the amount of data amount of knowledge that's coming in we exist in what's known as a knowledge economy now And without that data, we're really making uneducated guesses, Um, not on evidence, which is what the data is, but on just um, estimations. Amazing. I personally absolutely agree. I think the way you've articulated it is um, and separated out this notion of uh, the act of collection being quite benign. Well, both um, quite and quite neutral. It's not necessarily positive or negative. It's an activity which has a lot of 
potential, latent potential, once you have data collected. Of course, it could be used maliciously and be terribly dangerous. It could also be used to uh, benefit, improve our systems and how we do things and just generate knowledge for humanity <laughs> and for us to operate better as a society. And what and I love this notion of data itself is benign. It's just like any tool in the world itself is quite neutral and benign. It's really about the uses and the application of it that can be either dangerous or incredibly useful. And you're right, if we uh, set up the policies and regulations to prevent that malicious use and just allow and proliferate the amazing benefits, that would be amazing. You're right. And that separation sometimes and hopefully can take out the sometimes unreasonable fear and worry that we have against it. Amazing. Yeah, yeah I find that framework really, really, really useful. And I've never thought of it this way. So yeah. amazing. But back so, to the original question. Yes. <laughs> so let me ask your, answer your question about um, smart cities. I think there's a couple of different visions of smart cities. Um, one in which we want to reduce our resource consumption. And mm -hmm. I like that in a sense that we have, you know, frequent mass transit. Um, but there's also the case that people are looking for convenience. And um, a lot of studies have shown that ride sharing actually um, really adds to the congestion of roads, depending on the time of day um, mm -hmm. and the demand. And it actually uh, creates a mode shift away from people taking public transit and back into cars. Um, so... I like the stance of, for example, Kevin Desmond, who's the CEO of TransLink, our local regional um, transportation authority in Vancouver, in that um, he accepts them and he wants them to be part of the ecosystem. And he wants uh, different services to work together integrated. Um, so when it comes to a smart city, I think it's really a, it's a really it's really two different visions that we have to um, find a consensus on, one which we're consuming more for uh, convenience and one which we optimize around consuming less. Um, I'll give you an example of something smart, for example, that uh, really frustrates some people in my city. That's mm -hmm. smart. Um, there's a book called How Bad Are Bananas by um, Mike Berner-Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever read it? I know I haven't, but this uh, fiasco and controversy around bananas, I know a little bit about. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not going to talk about bananas, but what I'm going to say about bananas is they're one of the most sustainable berries in the world. And yes, they're mm -hmm. a berry. Uh, they're not fruit, they're a berry. Um, one of the things he presents is that we don't like to eat asparagus when it's um, like limp. We like firm asparagus. So we chill the asparagus and sometimes we air freight it. So what's more sustainable, eating asparagus when it's out of season, it's been air freighted, it's been uh, chilled for storage, or driving a Hummer to work? So, uh, sorry, eating the asparagus and biking to work or driving a Hummer? <laughs> so, okay, go for it. Sorry, as somebody who works in sustainability and right now uh, deals with a lot of agribusinesses and agricultural commodities, we'll have a million things <clears throat> to say, um, which is a little bit about the journey that I took to, from Vancouver to Europe and living and working in the UK. Uh, yeah, that's exactly part of the things. Like I have a really big issue with people who go on and on about, you know, recycling and people who don't um, really 
live up to whatever they think is the green ideal and eat avocado toast all day. <laughs> and, and people living, uh, especially like upper middle class people living honestly high carbon lifestyles just by the virtue of all the luxuries they want to enjoy and still feeling justified because they use a metal straw instead of taking paper straws. Not only do they feel justified, then they then they go on to feel justified enough to judge other people and without understanding, obviously, the living context that they live in. Often people who are less privileged and come from different backgrounds don't have access to the same resources that they have and can't afford a metal straw instead of a free paper uh, paper or plastic straw that uh, McDonald's gives out, <laughs> right? There's all of these uh, things. And even if you try to shop zero ways, uh, even if you'd like to work every day, probably chances are that if you are a... Um, upper middle class uh, millennial who loves to travel, your carbon footprint is a lot higher than a lot of the people that you think, ooh, they're not great. <laughs> and, and there isn't uh, that much meaning in trying to compare everybody else's. It's really about improving what we have within the context that we have and being aware of our own choices and hopefully inspiring others from your choices rather than judging others for theirs. Yeah. Anyway, I can go on hours um, of rants about this. <laughs> are you able to answer my question? Is it more sustainable to drive to work in a Hummer or to bike bo uh, to work but only eating air freighted asparagus? This is part of the complexity about this question. It really, mm -hmm. really, really depends. And yeah. so it's really hard to make a value judgment or more so a, a scientific judgment on that because it depends on, obviously, like you said, the season, mm -hmm. the time, um, which grocer you're buying, buying the asparagus yeah. from, your location. Um, and also even it, it's not just about the proximity of your um, grocer to the um, farming original uh, farm from the asparagus. It's actually about all of their com complex global supply chain to get there. So the same grocer actually might be getting a very different carbon footprint asparagus, depending on which supply chain and which farmer they use. And they're obviously sourcing from a lot of different farms to get to your um, grocery aisle because they need to keep it in stock. But farming is never that consistent, right? There's yields problems, there's supply chain problems. So asparagus, asparagus that you get on your grocery aisle actually comes from a million different farms. So at the end of the day, it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible to guess. The, the only way as a consumer you can really be sure um, is if you're getting direct from a local farm. And even then, there are a lot of uncertainties. And which, again, goes back to the point of you're just trying to do your best. There's no point in judging. And also, if you allow me two more minutes of rant, I don't think it's the role of the consumer to be smart especially about something like sustainable uh, food choices or sustainability choices, because it is often incredibly complex. There's an element of it, which is obviously in the consumer's uh, power. But if I take, for example, uh, public health, for example, what we ask, we do ask uh, the regular citizens and the lay people to do certain things. We ask them to wash their hands. We ask them to, you know, eat fruits and veggies. Um, and we also ask them to watch out for certain simple signs like rashes, bumps, high fevers, diarrhea, right? But then when we say, oh, you see these signs, which um, noticing those signs are within the citizen's control. And then what do we say? Go see a doctor, 
right? We don't teach them how to diagnose um, TB or, um, you know, diabetes. We say, oh, hey, here are some very basic signs that you can see. And then the actual interpretation and diagnosis is done by a professional who knows how to do this because not everybody can be a medical professional. And that's very fair. I think the same is also true for sustainability is that as a consumer can't know about all of these incredibly complex details. It really should be, we should outsource that knowledge and vigilance to professionals who have dedicate their careers to it. We can't blame the consumer for being ignorant because they have other business and they're professionals and experts in something else. Um, so for example, instead of getting the consumers to try and figure out what is the best uh <clears throat> best consumption method in every single situation, season, location, um, vendor. It's more like we can maybe give them reliable certifications like the Marine Stewardship Council's um, uh, blue fish uh, logo or the RSPO, Responsible Palm Oil, or um, when it comes to uh, buildings, there's I know there's LEED certification. So you give them certain tools just so that they know that they can make certain level of informed choices but the vigilance behind, first of all, designing those standards, monitoring and impl implementing those standards really should be uh, the responsibility of the industry. And then our, the industry job is to deliver on those promises consistently and over time so that we, we can win the trust of the consumers who then are able to make uh, reasonably informed choices without being burdened with all this information. So there's so, that. <laughs> yeah, and um, I think it's quite important to have EPR and product responsibility um, for companies. It's something that we're talking about here in Vancouver. Ooh. But I'm actually trying to get at, um, and for Mike Berner Lee, for example, he found that it was twice as unsustainable to eat the asparagus and bike to work than it is to drive a Hummer. Um, because there isn't really the transparency, in, and it's difficult for the consumer to determine it. Uh, and what choice is sustainable or not? Because take, for example, a kilogram of beef. Um, a kilogram of beef take it has about 300 kilograms of um, CO2 emissions, takes 8,000 liters of water, and nearly an acre of land to create. And that's really unsustainable. So when you decide to bike to work instead of drive, you're switching from a more efficient uh, from switching to a more efficient vehicle, but less efficient fuel because gasoline in the end is so much more efficient than agriculture because of all the fuels and emissions that go into agriculture. Um, so one thing I want to mention, for example, is that I actually got an electric bike to go to work every day. Ooh. And it's it's 19 kilometers one way to work and 19 kilometers back. That would be nearly three hours of biking a day uh, mm -hmm. with the hills in Vancouver. And it's actually, people get pushback about it because they say, hey, that's not actually biking. Well, it's not, and it's not actually, it's, it's a great alternative compared to cars because people young or old can use electric bikes better. There's no way someone, you know, heading into 60s or uh, into their 70s or 80s going up the hills in Vancouver are going to want to do that every day and it, whether or not that'd be healthy for them. So it's more accessible. There's a higher mode shift away from cars and it's actually more sustainable because the electricity we use in BC is um, mainly hydro and it's very sustainable. It's actually more sustainable than the fuels I use. Even if I uh, adopt a really sustainable diet, electricity is still more efficient than our metabolic process and the fruits and vegetables that we create because of all the resources that go into it. So 
Um, part of that too, and I think one of the difficulties is changing consumer habits so they're better, um, better for society as a whole, like um, adopting more wide public transit versus uh, private vehicle ownership. Another thing that sounds really awkward when you talk to North Americans about it is um, our obsession with uh, owning property. If you think of a really efficient system, like nowadays we're changing jobs so much more. You're not going to stick with the same jobs for 20, 30 years. Uh, you tend to jump. And so imagine a world where you suddenly got a new job in the, at the other side of town. Well, instead of commuting for an hour a day, you just move to another home. Then you don't have to have to use any of the transportation uh, infrastructure at all in the city. Um, you would also, it would also be a lot more sustainable. So the perfect system, actually, for sustainable cities is one in which housing is more of a commodity, interchangeable, um, and that most of it is rental. Oh, my goodness. There's a million economic controversies around this. Ooh, 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 exciting. Um, but one point <clears throat> I want to really delve further into is this notion of, um, <clears throat> in particular, uh, because you as a consumer, you're trying to make the best choices possible. And given your context, especially given that uh, British Columbia has hydroelectricity, thankfully, um, and really has quite efficient and sustainable sources of uh, power, that's, you know, uh, the widest choice you could have made. And that that's something that's really kind of designed and enabled by um, really beyond your uh, our own individual capacities to change right we it's really hard for us to say we should stop burning coal and we should switch to hydroelectricity you know that's that's a really difficult thing but i love it when um larger infrastructure and large-scale uh choices uh these um deliberate uh designs by urban planners or developers or even larger scale regional provincial and national planners um when that enables and just changes the uh, game entirely. And now we are able to operate at a such much better level because whenever it comes to power, for example, we always have um, electricity as a very reliable and sustainable option. And that's such an, such an enabling condition to um, have. And now, even if the person, uh, even if the average Vancouverite just doesn't give a damn <laughs> and doesn't think about their sustainability choices, which I hope doesn't apply to anybody, um, they are still much better um, than the average citizen in another place, like in China or in lots of other countries where the main source of electricity is coal burning, for example. And I love it when these deliberate designs and planning and infrastructural decisions really enable everybody to be a lot better. And it's really game changing. Let me also ask some questions about you bringing okay. away from sustainable urban development and this big picture stuff and bring it down to your personal story. Um, just to reiterate the mission, um, you told me that your mission is to champion the role of and grow the capacity of cities as the solution and not the cause of climate change, which is, uh, first of all, really cool. And it's I love um, using cities as kind of the, the tool to um, create change or really find it using it as the best platform to create change. And obviously, you know, we can articulate that mission now, but when you first started, where did you start? Did you know that you were going to end up here um, and what's your journey been so far? 
There was a NASA scientist by the name of uh, James Hansen, I believe it was, who famously said 20 years ago that, you know, they could have solved climate change by the 1990s, uh, 1997s, uh, which was around the year I was born, um, well, is the year I was born, um, because we already had the technology to do it. We already, but we, we lacked the motivation. So um, that got me really interesting in two things, like how do we bring the technology so that it's distributed more widely? Or adopted or invested in and um, how do we move so that um, these political changes become adopted and so that got me really interested in cognitive psychology how we make decisions and when, and, when was this like where um, was there like a turning point or like when you got exposed to this quote or this idea that inspired you to then delve more into it I think it was like the ninth or tenth grade like five or six years ago where I really got interested in sustainability. I started um, meeting people in my city, started getting to know people, started doing a lot of volunteer work, um, and then started to really explore and uh, think about these things. And I ended up taking a degree at UBC in psychology to focus on um, how we make these decisions around becoming more sustainable, how we can propel them to become, how we can propel society to become more sustainable. And... Over, that, over the years, actually, it's become a huge focus where um, a couple of years ago, the winner of the Nobel Prize was Richard Thaler, who was one of the pioneers for um, behavioral economics. And before, before him, you had Amos Tversky and uh, Daniel Kahneman, who also won the Nobel Prize around uh, behavioral economics. So um, in that time, like there's these governments have been producing what's called nudge units, which are units around changing behavior without economic incentives. And at UBC, we have uh, one of the world leaders, um, Zhang Zhao, uh, who runs the um, the behavioral sustainability lab at UBC, where they're exploring some of these issues. And did you get involved in how? How did you then go about exploring it? Um, I also know that you've done really cool things on the side, um, perhaps prior to or during your uni years where um, you run for a certain parliament. <laughs> yeah, so entering into uh, university, I was actually in part of the federal campaign. I ran for a Richmond Center with the Green Party of Canada and um Half of the campaign was in the summer and half of it was me skipping school and going out and running. Um, <laughs> and so I really enjoyed talking, going to talks, going to public talks. And it was a great learning experience. Um, I think one thing you find in Canada is people are collaborative. I actually worked with um, a member of parliament, Joe Pesky Salido, who, um, who was in the writing next over. But in Richmond, there's two writings. So it was technically like two candidates on every party competing against each other. We actually worked on register retirement savings plan policy together, and it's been forwarded to our finance minister, Bill Morneau's office. So exciting times. Um, wow, that's really intense. I mean, in general, you've achieved so much. Uh, uh, well, if you excuse me for saying that, um, you've achieved so much for your age. And also you've been sitting down with, like you say, like finance ministers and people who can really be intimidating um, from a very young age. And I think a lot of 18, 19 year olds and myself included did not have um, the courage or the confidence or the initiative to pull that off. And what was it like 
were you were you uh, shivering in your seats or <laughs> how, what was that like? You know, someone has to get something done. And I think there's just not enough youth in politics. Um, politicians aren't closed off. They actually put a lot more work into seeing their community, meeting people, um, because they want to be out there. They want to hear your opinions. So when you actually have the courage to come to them, they already recognize your bravery. They already appreciate your presence. It's They're really humble about it. Um, I'm not so sure about democracies where you have like one representative per million people. Um, I'm thinking the United States in this example. Okay. In Canada, when you have like 40, 50,000 people, uh, per member of parliament, or um, sorry, I'm thinking, I'm thinking maybe MLA. A member of parliament is about eighty or ninety thousand average. Um, then you know they put a lot more work into meeting people because mm-hmm. in the end, not a lot of people are involved. Not a lot of people have that courage to meet with uh, a representative. That's amazing. That's also very encouraging. And actually, the previous episode. Um, Federica, uh, who works for Bristol City Council um, in dealing with vulnerable youth, uh, ended up talking exactly about that, uh, the really the importance of especially youth and especially people with this kind of right set of values and um, heart for the community and the people around them and making the world a better place to take action through the formal channels of politics. Because I think especially people who identify themselves as their alternative, um, it's easy for them to uh, try and tackle it from a very different way. For example, me coming from business school, people try to uh, find a private sector solution to everything. When there is actually a specific platform channel for us to be making um, decisions that affect our cities and our societies, we have a we have a tool for that. We have a tool specifically designed for that. But we, instead of engaging with that tool, uh, we try to find kind of a backdoor way to achieving our goal, um, and perhaps that's doing ourselves a disservice. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, today government and business are interrelated. Um, we actually, the whole world follows a principle called ordoliberalism. Have you ever heard about it? No, I haven't. Uh, Ordo came from a post-World uh, War II German uh, magazine called Ordo, which means order. And what it said was that, you know, um, there's two extremes. There's complete government control of their economy, uh, which has ended very poorly. Um, and then there's also the extreme of putting all the... all. Uh, all the responsibility on the private sector for economies. Um, and so what ordo liberalism said, well, that's dangerous because people start to accumulate power, either the private sector or the government. People start using that irresponsibly and to a point where they're harming people uh, rather than societal good. So we have things like antitrust laws that prevent anti-competitive behavior automatically. So today we practice a free, fair, competitive market. And that free, competitive, fair market actually requires government control in order for it to stay free and competitive. Cool. All of these things. And and I think part of the reason why you have so much thought um, and uh, you've gathered all this knowledge about politics and power um, is because you yourselves are quite interested. You yourself is quite interested in um, engaging with it, not just in the previous run that you've had when um, in the beginning of your uni years, but now that you've graduated and you are working full time, I know that it's still an 
area of interest to you? I know that as a friend and, you know, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Uh, can you repeat the question? Oh, yeah, sorry. So this um, area of politics, um, I know that you're still interested, still definitely interested in this and you want to be engaged more in this uh, going on in the future. Do you have any future plans for where you want to go next or um, future plans in terms of engaging with Word of Wallace? Yeah, you know, it's it's a good practice. I think I'm learning a lot about what the private sector can do working through World of Wallace. Because there's a lot of people in the world who think, who think, well, this is impossible to do and make a profit from. Well, actually, you can do it, make a profit from, leave people better off and create beautiful communities and cities. Um, so World of Wallace is really showing the world that it's possible to do this through the private sector. And at the same time, you need policy to run as fast as those changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luckily in Vancouver, we have really progressive policy around things like green building products, um, but not so much of, and not so much about like the speed of urban development. So, um, or the form or flexibility of it. Um, so you really, you really need to be involved in the two fronts, and I think that's something that is going to become more common with more people in the future is to um, engage politics more because we're being a lot more purpose-driven there's a lot of value-driven companies emerging who say hey our bottom line isn't just profit anymore a uh, profit is what sustains us and helps us grow and in a sense makes a sustainable effort um but our end goal is a mission of value and in order to achieve that mission of value it requires um talking with politicians representatives about changing the rules and speaking about missions and values, um, I have just a handful of questions left um, before we finish, wrap up our interview. And a quick one is, and of course by quick, I'm putting in air quotes, um, a quick one is why does this mission matter so much to you? <laughs> I know this can become a really long interview just on that one question, but um, why does it matter so much to you? I think we went, um, you know, we've been around for, I think it was like 30,000 years as sort of our modern species, Homo sapien. Um, And within the last fraction of it, like think about minutes on uh, a day, uh, we've we've pretty much come to destroying the entire biosphere. And that doesn't just include us, but the environments and the different creatures that inhabit it. And that is just a shocking thing. And we're not, we're going to leave, in all likelihood, we're going to leave the world much worse off unless we do something. So there really is a sense of urgency that I've always felt that, you know, um, politically we keep kicking this down the road, but it we can't anymore. We've even come a little bit past the point of no return where we need to get things done now. And to get involved in that and to become part of that, what can the average person um, or what, uh, one of our average listeners do to get involved with their mission or to participate, you know, assuming that they're not normally urban development uh, or urban planning professionals or really experts or people who have decision-making power in this might have different jobs and different backgrounds. You know, I think there's a lot of people who do advocacy around like adopting global systems, 
binding agreements. Um, and that political will is great, but I think a really big difference is thinking about smart solutions and bringing it to representatives. And then if they're not willing to adopt it, to bring it into the public world, to make sure that the idea is shared and adopted somewhere. Because maybe one city doesn't want to adopt your policy, maybe, uh, and you can learn if whether or not in time, whether or not policy makes sense. But if a city doesn't want to adopt it, bring it to the next one, bring it to the next one, the world's full of opportunity. And if you can create a great idea and someone sees that it's working out really well, it'll permeate other people, copy other people would, um, other people would eventually spread it around the world. And that's the incredible thing about today where we're so data-driven and shared, connected. Uh, no one could imagine, say, 200 years ago, like being able to, for me, to call you in the middle of the night here um, <laughs> at the other side of the world. Um, and for us to have so much data available, like I can go online and learn anything. I can go learn civil engineering. I can go learn about artificial intelligence. I can learn about anything. Um, we're in a world which is shared and full of data. And if you have a great idea, it will eventually spread. Awesome. Amazing. Thanks for the inspiration. And um, on to kind of wrap it up, uh, is there any links or resources you would want to direct people to, especially if they want to learn um, more about your work um, or just kind of about the topics we've discussed? And especially if they, if they want to become more knowledgeable and become um, more aware of either the policy work or the um, urban development work that we've discussed? Well, I'm currently working on forming my own company called Cedar Plus Policy, and that's still very much early phases. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the work of Waldo Wallace, and I'm speaking on this podcast uh, as part of my own voice and not as part of Waldo Wallace, but you can check them out at World of Wallace, which is W-A-L-A-S for Wallace. Com. Um, and one of my favorite institutes for solving global issues is the Rocky Mountain Institute. And I'd highly recommend reading their founder and I think current director's book, uh, Maury Lovins, A Reinventing Fire. Cool. I'm going to put all of those um, uh, lists of links and also the title of the book in my show notes as soon as I get the exact spelling from Vincent. <laughs> and yeah, I just have one final question to end all of this, which is, you know, the title of our podcast, True Heroes. Do you think of yourself as a hero? Mm, I don't really think the world's full of heroes or villains. It's just people who grow up in different environments, adopt different views. And if we're going to really solve these issues, it's really about talking to the people that uh, we have the most in impact rather than preaching to the choir. So, you know, I think there's, I think there's a feeling of dichotomy there where we're really depending on people, heroes to fight villains or heroes to guide us. And I think everyone gains a lot from being part of a dialogue where everyone's involved, a democracy. And in that sense, perhaps there's a hero and villain in all of us. And it really is all about both perspective and um, how we bring out the best in, inside all of us. Many thanks to Vincent for an eloquent and informational interview. And I always learn so much from speaking with him because he seems to have an infinite number of resources, Nobel Prize winners, books, and quotes on hand for every situation. Basically, it wouldn't be a Vincent conversation if he didn't say, have you heard of this economist too? You know, it, that's his classic Vincent. 
It's such an inspiration also because、um, his goal of building sustainable cities overlaps so well with the vision of Oco. And on that note, I'd really appreciate it if you could support Oco by supporting the show. This is my passion project on top of my full time job. It takes me a lot of time and a lot of effort, and I'd love it for it to pay off by reaching more and more ears and just having people learn about these inspiring people. Share the podcast on your social media, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to, and please tell all of your friends who may be in a bit of a rut and would really benefit from a weekly dose of inspiration. And of course, This podcast is a brainchild of Oco, the company whose mission is to generate hope, opportunity, and capacity for everyone in every city. Thanks for lending an ear to true heroes. Talk to you next week.